You're listening to Trademarks Made Easy. Trademarks Made Easy is the podcast focused on helping brand owners in the e-commerce space. With your host, Susie Hickson, the private label lawyer. But don't worry, you won't find too much legalese here. Well, hello there. I'm your host, Susie Hickson, also known as the private label lawyer. In this episode, I'm going to talk to Gary Wang, the founder of 8020 Sourcing, about the U.S.-China trade war and what this means for you and your online business. Gary is an absolute wealth of information, and I know you're going to love it. But here's the deal. Gary is such a wealth of information that I had to break this up into two easily digestible parts. Oh, guys, there's so much good stuff in here. So let's get started with part one, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the Trademarks Made Easy podcast. I am really excited today to have my very first interviewee, Gary Wang, with 8020 Sourcing. So let me tell you all just a little bit about Gary's background. Gary helps online sellers save time, frustrations, and luckily money when sourcing your products from China through his webinars, coaching, and articles on his 8020 sourcing website. Previously, he managed multi-million dollar sourcing campaigns for clients in the U.S. and Latin America. Having worked with hundreds of Chinese suppliers. He's seen the good, the bad, and the ugly side of China sourcing. He's also an experienced online seller himself. Gary serves as the co-chair of the American Chamber of Commerce's Supply Chain Committee in Shanghai City. He's fluent in Mandarin Chinese, and in his spare time, he enjoys traveling and exploring the cultural and culinary sides of China while building towards a seven-figure business. And I'm sure he is also now spending a lot of his free time, quote-unquote free time, with his new little boy. Welcome, Gary. I'm so happy to have you here. Is there anything that you would like to tell us about yourself that I didn't uh, touch on in that awesome bio? Thank you so much, Susie. It's a great pleasure to be here today. and I'm very honored that you thought of me. No, I think you you did an excellent job covering it. Awesome. Well, one of the first things I like to ask people when I'm getting to know them in their business is how did they come up with their business name? And obviously, as a trademark lawyer and brand name selection strategist, how people come up with their trademarks or their brand names and kind of the stories behind that is really, really important to me. I just I love knowing that. So. Could you tell me a little bit about how you came up with the name 8020 Sourcing? Definitely. That's a great question to start off with, Susie. Working in China, working with all of these suppliers that I've dealt with over the years, there's probably hundreds of thousands, if not more, factories out there. I found that through my workings with them, helping clients, you know, visiting them, a lot of them are not the right fit. 
I mean, the supplier may be like the quality may be too low or the pricing could be too high, or maybe they're not interested in doing a small business, you know, doing business with small businesses. So you really have to do like an 80-20 analysis to find that key 20% of these suppliers that are the right fit for these types of small business owners. So that's kind of like the, like the guiding uh, philosophy behind the whole thing. You know, I help people find the right suppliers with the right products at the right prices for their businesses. And then I help them scale their businesses from there. So basically you're taking this information and helping people be more efficient when they're doing their research. So they're basically not putting their energy and time and resources towards a lot of things that might not pan out. Because as we know, time kind of is money. Some people say time is money. Depends. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I try to help people avoid the missteps as well. I mean, there's a lot of rookie mistakes that people make. There's a lot of like scam artists out there as well. So I think just avoiding those would save people a lot of time and money. So you spend most of your time in Shanghai. You speak fluent Mandarin you have had ample experience as an e-commerce seller. Obviously, right now, at the time of this recording, we are in a trade war with China. And obviously, this is a little bit different than a typical war, but doesn't mean that it can't have incredible impacts on people's bottom lines. I would love for you to talk a little bit about where we are currently with the U.S.-China trade war and where you foresee that going over the next maybe two to three months. I feel kind of like we're at this impasse and that nothing is really happening and that there are these heavy tariffs, but there's, there's no movement going on. I'm sure there's negotiations going on in the background, but obviously a lot of things that us mortals, <laughs> normal people, yeah. just things that we're not privy to. to. So what are right. you seeing right now? That's a great question. So in, in my view, I've been based in Shanghai. I've been on the ground since 2008. So I've been working in China with Chinese suppliers for many years. But at the same time, I was born and raised in the U.S., in Los Angeles. You know, I went to school there, spent 20 plus years there. So I think I have a unique perspective. You know, being able to view the issue from both sides, which I think is very important. And just as a side note, and you might find this interesting, Susie, while serving as the co-chair of the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai for the Supply Chain Committee, I was invited on a trade delegation to Washington, D.C. to visit the White House, to sit down with U U.S. Congress officials, to kind of share some of the perspectives that U.S. businesses are facing on the ground in China. This was last year about August. And, you know, the, the trade war has evolved, you know, we're seeing these new uh, issues come up. But I feel like, you know, there's a saying when two elephants fight, it's the rest of the jungle that gets hurt. It's the rest of like, you know, the small animals, maybe, you know, like the antelopes, the anteaters, you know, the deers, etc. Kind of like the small business owners that we all are, we're the ones that are feeling the pain. Okay, um, you know, there's a lot of politics involved, you know, I'm not political pundit, I don't try to play one on TV, so I'm not going to delve too much into that. But in general, you know, what I'm seeing right now, we are in an impasse. We're kind of, you know, the two sides, they're, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's already been hundreds of millions of dollars of tariffs that have been passed with the 25%. And right now, the, the key issue that I think a lot of sellers are concerned about 
is the remaining $300 billion that Trump is threatening to slap tariffs on. So basically, we're not sure what's going to happen because they are still in negotiations. You know, there's talks of threats. But right now, we're still not sure about the last $300 million. If the $300 million is included in the final round of tariffs, basically that means all of the products made in China imported to the U.S. will be affected by the additional 25%. That's kind of where we are right now. And if some of the, the listeners are, are asking, how, how do I know if my products are affected? You can check the U.S. government trade website. And then we can also link this up in the show notes where you can actually enter in your product HS code, like harmonized classification code. And then they can find out immediately whether or not they're affected or they can talk to their freight forwarder or a customs broker. That's how they will be able to find out as of. Yeah, that that would be really helpful, Gary. And we'll definitely put that in the show notes. And I think that you had mentioned a checklist too that will be in the show notes. And within that checklist and some information on China tariffs could be a link to the government website that you're talking about as well. So I'll make sure that people can get a copy of that because I think that that's really helpful. Right now, are any products safe? Are there any... what? Safe. Are, are there any that aren't subject to the tariffs that are good products to consider? As of now, there's still about $300 billion worth of products that have not been affected, that have not been affected as of yet. So it's, it's really hard for me to say what has and what has not, because it depends on the classifications. You know, talking to a lot of these Amazon sellers, private label sellers, you know, some of them that are selling products made of plastics have been affected. Some that have been selling paper products have been affected. But on the other hand, you know, some of the, the textiles have not been affected yet. Some of the stainless steel products have not been affected yet. So you really have to, to check. I mean, it, as they say, it's, you know, the devil's in the details. You really have to check to find out whether or not. And then again, with the remaining $300 billion, we're really not sure. It's kind of up in the air right now. You know, Trump is threatening this, using, and we, we don't know how the, the final negotiations will pan out. We're just going to be the little anteaters, aren't we? <laughs> While the big elephants are having their yeah. fight. You've mentioned this before, the big players, observing what the big players are doing, the Costco's, the Walmarts, Nike. What are we seeing out of these big brands in terms of their manufacturing in China and how that is impacting them and what their step, what are they doing? That's a really smart question, Susie. And um, the, the reason is, you know, a lot of the like Amazon sellers, like the one man or one woman shows running their business, they don't really have the, the sophisticated teams and the supply chains to, to operate you know, their whole sourcing department, like the big players, like the Nikes, the Walmarts. So I always try to learn from what the big players are doing, okay? Mm-hmm. So if I were to look at the past five years, we already saw the big players such as Nike, such as Walmart, Apple, starting to shift some production out of China since 2014. Okay, this is due to a, a various mix of reasons, including increasing costs in China. The labor costs have been increasing as much as 20% uh, year on year. Also increased environmental scrutiny by the Chinese government. I mean, in my perspective, this is a positive thing because you know China is trying to reduce the, the air quality pollutions, the water pollutions, which is trying to you know, help the, the people, improve their, 
their quality of life. But at the same time, a lot of the heavily polluting factories were shut down in the past couple of years. So some of these product, you know, these factories, they had no choice to sh- but to shut down. So if you're sourcing these type of fabrics or these types of textiles with the dyes, you would have to consider shifting out of China. So in essence, they've kind of adopted a China plus one strategy. China plus one meaning they're still keeping some or most of their production in China, but they would add an additional country to source some of the remaining products. It could be India, it could be Bangladesh, uh, Southeast Asia. So this is what the big players have been doing in the last five years. If you look at today, the trend is accelerating. Companies like Walmart, they have internal codes of conduct requiring that X percentage of products are sourced out of China. And um, I don't know if um, you've heard the recent developments last month on the news, both Walmart and Costco, they've publicly announced that they are raising their prices due to the China tariffs specifically. I believe it was their CFOs made um, public statements saying, you know, I hate to say it, but I feel like, you know, there's talks about the U.S. being the, the world's piggy bank. But I think ultimately it's like the people like you and me, Susie, it's our piggy banks that are being affected with the higher prices that we're forced to be to, to pay on these products when, you know, when we do do our, our shopping, you know, for our families. In essence, you know, this is what the, the big players are doing. So you'd mentioned India, Bangladesh as some alternatives for sourcing. Are there any particular countries that are ideal? And this is getting away from China a little bit, but I'm kind of curious about the sourcing aspect of this. Are there any countries that are ideal for specific categories of goods? Like, for example, I've heard Vietnam is really good for textiles, and I'm sure there's pros and cons for every jurisdiction. But in general, do you have any suggestions, just kind of big picture suggestions for particular categories of goods that are great to source from particular countries? Absolutely. Before we address specific countries, I think it's also very important that we consider whether or not and which products they would want to shift out of China. Talking to a lot of supply chain experts that are running their um, sourcing, uh, like their Asia or their global sourcing campaigns, um, one of the common themes that I'm hearing is that they consider shifting their most price-sensitive and less time-sensitive products out of China first. So the the most price-sensitive and the less time sensitive. The reason behind this is that China is still the dominant manufacturer of the world. I mean, the bulk majority of the products are made in China. And if you look at the past history, China has decades of experience manufacturing these types of products. The skill set, the expertise isn't necessarily homegrown. If you look at Apple, you know, they've spent probably millions of dollars, you know, training these workers, um, you know, working with the right partners. So China's manufacturing efficiency and quality is at a, I mean, there's a range, but on average, it would be higher than a lot of the other alternative countries, such as India, such as Vietnam, just because China has already had the head start and the, you know, the wherewithal, the experience. So the takeaway is that not all products can be made out of China. You can't simply say, oh, you know, I'm going to stop, you know, sourcing my widgets from China. I'm going to go direct to, to India problem solve because many, it might not be available in those countries. So again, I would say first, 
consider shifting to price sensitive and less time sensitive products out of China first. And then um, secondly, realize that the cost savings going out of China may not be that big because there are some hidden costs sourcing from these other countries as well. We can get into that as if you like as well. But in essence, these other countries, the, the workers may not be as skilled as in China. So the productivity could be lower. There could be more errors. The delivery, the delivery dates could be longer. So there could be a longer lead time. And as you said, you know, time, time is money. So um, one of the key takeaways is that it will be more work to manage sourcing from a new region, you know, based on the insights from a lot of the supply chain professionals that, that I've talked with. Are you getting a lot of inquiries with your firm about sourcing outside of China right now? Have you seen a big uptick in that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, due to the trade war, there's you know, tremendous interest in sourcing away from China. And, you know, I've been talking to my Chinese manufacturer contacts as well. And then they've received a lot fewer inquiries from the U.S., especially in the past couple of months, as you know, this whole issue is just reaching a boiling point. right now. So there's tremendous interest going away from China. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And this is going to be really interesting because it it's definitely going to impact not just the bottom line of sellers, e-commerce sellers, but obviously, like you said a minute ago, it's going to impact people's pocketbooks here in the, in the U.S. So it's going to be interesting to see how people maybe vote with their pocketbook. That's what they always say. So, you know, I don't know if a resolution is in sight for that, you know, with, with the trade war. And I don't think any of us ever know. I think that one day we're just going to, you know, wake up and check Twitter and the, you know, President Trump will just have some announcement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and will be like, oh, okay, well, I guess that just happened. I don't know. But if people are interested in taking those steps and they've kind of, they've done, I understand that there's a lot of balancing that goes on here. There's a lot of costs to consider obviously there's time to consider. Like you said, it's going to take longer to have the infrastructure up and running in a place like India, if you want to make a particular widget, and then you're going to have to factor in transfer time or transport time. So that's kind of a, you know, obviously people have to think about that when they're deciding whether or not they want to start looking at products outside of China. When they start going down that road, how do they find them? Like, how do they find, because I feel like with China, we're at that point where a lot of sellers know the reputable manufacturers, the, you know, the reputable resources within China, but places like India and uh, Vietnam, just Southeast Asia, it, there's a few more unknowns. How are people dealing with that? How can people learn more about sourcing out of those areas and how can they find reputable suppliers right now? Right. I feel that when people think about sourcing a product, they automatically think Alibaba. That's probably the most popular website. And Alibaba has really great coverage in China, but their coverage is pretty weak in those other countries. You can't just simply expect to find the same product that you can find in China using Alibaba. I'll give three quick tips for you guys, okay? Number one is there's a way that you can search the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol import records of other companies that are importing this product. So let's say if you wanted to you know, source this coffee tumbler, this stainless steel coffee tumbler, 
and you wanted to see if this can be manufactured in uh, Vietnam, for example. So if I were to do the customs border patrol search, I'm just looking at the bottom of this to see where it was made in. It is made in China. Okay. So I would search through the customs border patrol records for this product and see where other importers are importing from. And then if any of those importers are importing from like an India or a Vietnam or a Thailand. And then through these records, you can actually find the exporters information. So it could be XYZ factory in India, in Thailand. So that is one way. That's a great tip. Like that is such a great hands-on tip. And is that, is that cbp.gov correct? I, I use, uh, I've used customs for some trademark work because sometimes I will have customs Mm. It will, will, will record trademarks with customs and border patrol. So I'm wondering, is all that searchable on the CBP website? The issue with the CBP website is, I mean, not to, not, not to uh, disrespect, <laughs> but, but you know, a lot of the, the government websites, it's very bureaucratic. I'll just put it that way. It's not very easy to, to search through, as you, you may have found out yourself. I do know this. <laughs> yeah, so there are uh, third-party tools out there. Okay, third-party tools. Yeah, third-party websites that can like okay. more quickly search these, these websites. Um, actually, uh, Jungle Scouts, uh, you know, it's a very popular Amazon product research tool. They do have a supplier database feature they added recently where you can search through the custom CBP import records. And then there's other websites such as Pangeva, such as Import Genius. Uh, these two websites also allow these searches uh, for a fee. Or you can try to do a Google search as well. It's not 100%, but I, I would start with that. Okay, Th that's actually really good information. And what I can maybe do is put links to those uh, Jungle Scout and the other two that you had mentioned in the in the show notes. I think that would be really helpful for people. So, and then what I need to do is I need to get Greg <laughs> on here to talk about that specifically. I think that's a such a good tip, and I really thank you for providing it. You mentioned two more takeaways. Definitely. So that's number one. That would be the quickest one because you really don't have to leave the comfort of your your home or your office to to do that. Secondly, is to attend trade shows. So you really have to boots on the ground, whether visit trade shows. Um, if you're sourcing a kitchen product, you know, try to visit those kitchen trade shows. I think most of your listeners are in the States. You know, there's a lot of trade shows going on in Vegas, in New York, uh, in Florida, depending on which niche you're in. And then a lot of these foreign suppliers, they would travel internationally to the U.S. if they're serious. So I think trade, trade shows are an excellent way to find suppliers. I always think of it this way. You know, any supplier that's willing to, to fly thousands of miles, spend you know, a good chunk of money on airfare, hotels, and the, the registration fee for the booth at the trade show because it's not cheap, that shows me that they, they've got some skin in the game. They're more inclined to be more trustworthy than someone that you just find online randomly. I think that makes a lot of sense. Do you have maybe two or three favorite trade shows you can mention? Favorite trade shows? That's a really good question. Um, previously, when I first got started in private label, this is kind of interesting. I, I haven't shared this this much, but my first product was actually women's shoes, women's footwear. And then I was selling these very niche, like Mary Jane shoes. And then for fashion, the magic show in Vegas, that's probably the top one. Um, if you're in fashion, apparel, accessories, 
Yeah, that one is huge. And then I like to go to the trade show, not just to source products, but to learn about you know trends, what's new, because oftentimes you can spot new products there before they're, you know, they're on Alibaba or online. So Magic Show is really good. For China, the, the no-brainer is the Canton Fair. That happens twice a year in South China. And that basically is the biggest one in the, in the world. There's probably tens of thousands of suppliers. You can you know, walk the floor, spend days there. Um, there's three phases, yeah. uh, depending, again, on the specific niche that your listeners are in. So I would do an online search to find out which phase they're in. So, I mean, you don't have to fly to China. There's a lot of trade shows in the U.S. as well, if you can't afford that. But um, definitely, I would recommend. I'm sure that you do a little research. There are probably trade shows constantly going on for almost every niche, and especially in Vegas. Vegas seems to be like the, the place for conventions and trade shows. So I'm sure people can find something. And it sounds like going to these trade shows is something that people underestimate the importance of. Could you talk a minute about the importance of trade shows and what kind of what your experience is with that and why people might want to get away from sitting at their computer? Because I know it seems so easy, not easy, but it seems easier if there's a little less resistance there when you're at your computer and you can jump on Alibaba or whatever. But I feel like if you invest into going to a trade show, whether it's Canton Fair, Magic Show, whatever, people are going to see some real tangible benefits. Can you talk about some of the pros of that? Definitely. I think one of the top benefits is just the fact that you can feel the product in your hands at the trade show. Whereas online, on the other hand, you have to go back and forth, play email hockey, and then if you want a sample ship, it's going to take weeks and probably like 100 bucks, right? So it really fast tracks the whole thing because once you get the sample in your hand, you know exactly, is the quality good enough? Or maybe, you know, this is like a 99 cent store only product. It's not good enough. So I just move on. So you, and then the second benefit is that you can quickly visit a lot of vendors at the same time at the same place, right? So like when I go to a trade show in like one morning, I can probably see like a dozen suppliers. Whereas if I try to do the same thing online, it could probably take me weeks. Right. So it really saves time because everything is compacted into one place at the same time. Thirdly, you can learn very quickly. Um, you know, I've talked to seven figure sellers where, you know, they went to a trade show total, you know, being a total rookie in, in what, you know, in this new product niche they were wanting to enter. And then they just talk to the vendors, they ask them questions. And with each conversation, they're adding to their knowledge bank. They're learning about the nuances of the product. What are the common problems? Oh, you know, I like this lid from supplier A. And then when I talk to supplier B, you know, I can ask them, can you do that? Right. So I, you can actually, you know, learn of improvements as well. So I, I think that those are some of the main benefits. Some of the, like the soft skill benefits the more indirect benefits going to trade shows are just being able to, you know, look somebody in, in the eye to look, you know, to meet them in person because that's very valuable in building these relationships. You know, regardless if you're working with a Chinese supplier, an American supplier, an Indian supplier, I mean, this is universal, the human um, relationship, the human connection. So I feel like that's something that's very difficult to build if you're just doing pure email or, you know, online communications. I think that, these are some of the top benefits going to trade shows. So I feel like it really you know, fast tracks the process versus just purely going online. Thank you so much for tuning in to part one of this interview with Gary Wang. I hope you loved it and I hope you found it of value. 
Now, in our next episode, we're going to dive into part two of this jam-packed podcast with Gary Wang. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And remember, never stop learning. Thanks for listening to Trademarks Made Easy with Susie Hickson, the private label lawyer. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe anywhere you find podcasts or at theprivatelabellawyer.com. Remember, the information provided in the Trademarks Made Easy podcast should not be construed as legal advice. It's for informational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered a substitute for legal advice. Also, I'm not your attorney. You should engage with an attorney to discuss your specific legal issues. And finally, while I have taken precautions to ensure that the content of my podcast is current and accurate, Errors can occur, and thankfully, like us, the laws are ever-evolving.